0: Romans chapter 8, we are in verse number 12 and verse number 13 today, speaking about the security you have in this life. So far, we've dealt with several points of the security of the believer in this little section, verse 9 through 13 deals with the security we have in this life. And it's a good thing we have security in this life. That's what the Lord gives to us. And we're learning from that in this passage. Yesterday, I set some bird feeders out in the back so we could watch the birds come and go. And uh, um, it took uh, several hours toward evening time before they found out it was there. And then I noticed something very interesting. For the first uh, several minutes I watched them, the birds would come in and they'd all just worked their way around the ground below the feeders, and uh, some were, you know, chasing the other ones away, and they were going after the seed. They had very little seed on the ground, that's just what spilled when I filled the feeder, but very little seed there, and they were very content to spend all their time there, not knowing how much was up above their head, in all those feeders that, that were full. And I wonder sometimes, when we approach God's word, if we're... If we content ourselves with the small little things and we kind of peck around here, not knowing the greater things that are really there for us to enjoy. Today, the passage we deal with is a little heavy. I have to say that. It's, it's a little bit heavy. But it is worth your while to spend time at this feeder today. Alright? So we're going into verse number
1: 12,
0: verse number 13, where it says, So then, brethren... We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hmm. How many of us just stopped and said, Ooh, I can't imagine what's coming. Uh, it's, it sounds very heavy now, doesn't it? I want to, before we go into prayer, because we're certainly going to do that, underscore in verse number 12, you are in debt. You are debtors. We are debtors. We have an obligation. And we're going to talk about that today, especially. Uh, May that be the place where we feast the most today, to understand what does that mean, to be a debtor. I hope by the time we're through with our our, um, study, we will understand that better. So, Heavenly Father, we need you again as we open up your word. The great giver of the word of God is also the one who explains it to us. And we ask for your help at this time to work in our hearts and our lives. This word is not meant just to be said and returned to you empty or void, but it is meant to accomplish what you send it out to do. And being God, we know that you're quite capable of using it powerfully in our lives. We need that today. And as we submit ourselves to the word, teach us, we pray, Lord, you've already given to us the Holy Spirit to do that very task. You've given us the word that we can open and how privileged we are to have it. Now, in this exercise of learning from it, may it have its impact in our life. May we be different, because we have spent time with you. Thank you, Lord, for this. This time, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Ow. That was loud. Uh, all right. In verse number 8 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. These verses we've been walking through here. Verse number 8, I bring this to your attention again. Those who are in the flesh cannot. Now, do you have a word that strong? cannot, might not, doesn't say might not, says cannot please God. We underscore that, don't we? Very important verse. Because we're talking about the flesh again here today, when we get to verse 12 and 13. Now, he hasn't moved anywhere from that topic. He's been on it quite a bit in this section. But he's talking about the Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, and what a difference it makes for living. What a change He has made in our lives. The reality is this, and we dealt with this in Galatians chapter 5. As a believer in Christ, you are not to walk by the flesh, right? Thank you. Good, that is right. Because I was afraid Galatians 5 was going to start all over again. Um, We are not to walk by the flesh. Now, we know the struggle. That's why I called it a battlefield. We know the struggle and all that. But here's the reality. In Christ, you've been set free. To walk according to the manner in which you are called is the challenge, I know. But you have been set free from the things of the flesh. That's what Romans 8 is showing us in this passage. There's a, there's a security set in here that I'm hoping to express as we go through here. Because he says, in the flesh we cannot please God. But in verse 12, we are under obligation. An obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, there's two things to note as we enter into this passage. Verse number 12 starts with a a, a therefore. You may have so then or you may have therefore. You might have a word similar to that. That's where verse 12 begins. It's drawing a conclusion from the things we've been studying. The the statements I will make as simple as I can. In verse number 9, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, as a believer he does, by the way, you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. What's true of that as well, in verse number 10... Christ is in you. Also what's true, verse number 11, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Those are facts as a believer. You as a believer belong to Christ. Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Alright? Therefore, that's what he's coming to. He's going to draw a conclusion based on these facts. Brothers, we are debtors. We owe. We have an obligation. Debtors we are, the Greek says. Pretty strong. I mean, it likes to put the first word in emphasis. Debtors we are. Not to the flesh according to the flesh to live. And then he goes into verse 13 with the explanation. An explanation for, he says, and then he gives two examples, two explanations. I'm going to start with that first and work my way backwards today. Because verse number 13 helps us a little bit better to understand 12. All right? He's using 13 to explain, so I'm going to explain using verse 13 and then back up and go back to the big therefore. All right, uh, Use the idea of cause and effect for a few minutes. You understand the principle, right? Something causes, an action happens, there's an effect, there's a result. There's something that comes from it. There's a neat little verse that points this out. Rather fun, I think, but rather accurate. It's in Proverbs chapter 30, and it's verse number 33. You will enjoy this little passage, I think. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse number 33. A little verse on cause and effect here. I've got to find it too. If you found Psalms, you've gone too far backwards, start moving towards uh, the New Testament a little bit, you'll find Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33. It says here, For the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing of the nose brings forth blood, and the churning of anger produces strife. Three simple little illustrations. But here's what's interesting. All three of these use the same verb to describe the action. The churning of butter, the churning of a nose, and the churning of anger. It's the same Hebrew word all the way through. I use the churning of the nose there on purpose because you know what happens when you churn milk. Some of you have been down that road before, haven't you? That's the way you produce butter. But do you know that if you churn a nose like that, it will bleed? That's what the text says. You could experiment that, but not on somebody else. Uh, ch- you you churn a nose, you make it bleed. You churn the milk, you make butter. If you churn anger, you produce belligerence. Now I say belligerence because it has to right. Butter, blood, belligerence, all right? But it means hostility. It means violence. It means strife. Uh, A fighting. Uh, You know that. We all know that. You can either turn away wrath with a soft answer, or you can churn it. And then you've got a problem. It turns into a fight. Now, that's a simple picture of cause and effect, isn't it? You do one thing, it produces this. You do this, you produce that. You do this, you produce that. I thought that's kind of an interesting little thing, especially since they use the same word for it all the way around. Churning. Now, we read sometimes, when we get into Romans chapter 8 especially, uh, that when we get to a verse like 13, "...for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live." We, we are very quick to say, okay, Paul's giving us another set of rules. We've got to obey. We've uh, we got to do this. We've got to do that. You Because know. we do want to avoid the death thing, right? And so we're saying, okay, what do I do, Paul? What do I do here? Uh, so we're looking for duties. We're looking for rules. We're looking for things like that. Living according to the flesh, you must die. Killing the practices of the body by the spirit, you will live. I, I'll say it this way. This explanation is not so much a set of rules, what to do, but it is, if you will, the statements of reality. These are just the facts that are out there, the facts. Because if they are considered rules, when you just read verse number 12, you're starting to say, now what do I need to do in order to live? And what do I need to do that I would not die? And we start to go through a whole system that's based on merit. Based on deeds. Based on things we do to gain life. Now does scripture say that we gain eternal life by the things we do? No. Ephesians make that very clear, right? We're saved by grace. Not by what we do. We can't avoid death and we can't avoid life in this, like, spiritual things as if doing something is going to make the difference. We, we don't want the merit-based concept given to us here. And it's easy to do it when you look at a passage like this. But take it for statements of reality. He's explaining something. So he sets before you, well, this is true. And this is true. And if you look at the cause and if you look at the effect, then you can understand what he's pointing out through this passage. Interesting thing, though... They're not exactly opposites, He says, living by the flesh, then the first illustration, in verse number 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Now, he doesn't say, on the other hand, and if you're living by the Spirit, then you will live. Matter of fact, it gets a little more complicated than that, doesn't it? He says, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, then you will live. He says, Huh. That's kind of intriguing. What is that? Well, let's talk to a few things. What does it mean to live? Oh, you guys are pretty good at it. You're still doing it. Breathing, right? You're, you're up, you're alert, you're around, you're living. Uh, things like that. There are those who exist, right? They just exist. You know, they're out there. Some people just kind of pass through life like they're passing through time. They're just moving on, and, and they don't pay much attention to things. But is there a difference between such a thought like that and the word, like, vigor? That's a, that's a powerful word, isn't it? That's an active word. That's, that's, that's more than just um, existence. Some people call it true living. Some people say it's it's an active concept of being alive. Now, the word that you have in front of you is not the simple word for being alive. Bios is a Greek word, and some of you have studied things like biology and stuff. You know, it's a study of life, and that's just what creatures do, and breathing, and uh, functions of the body, and all those other things. This is zeo, and it speaks of a living thing. It speaks of, of the activities of life, the vigor of life, the, the some people say the true life. Now, in this verse, we can insert the word. If you are living, that's actively living, according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the same word again. So, we set that word in our context just for a minute. Then we go and look back again at the word flesh, which we've studied an awful lot in the last year and a half, haven't we? We talk through the word flesh and we try to understand what it is. I still like Ryrie's definition very well. Uh, Charles Ryrie in his basic theology came to this point of the flesh. It is the disposition to sin and to oppose God. The disposition to sin and oppose God. Now, I say that quite a bit here in the pulpit that sometimes we do things by our own strength. We do things by our own wisdom. We do things by our own will. Uh, we want our own glory. Those factors, I believe, speak of the flesh. What that is, is a self-dependence. A self-dependence for self-glorification. Sometimes when we we talk about, but aren't we just free to do this? Well, yeah, I guess so. We talk about a free will often, and maybe you've got a better one than I do. Mine wants me to be self-dependent. And quite honestly, I've never had my free will move me one inch closer to God. Most of the time it's running the opposite way. Because it likes itself. It glorifies itself. Uh, It goes all the way back to the original uh, suggestion from uh, Satan to Eve and later to Adam. Well, you want to be like God? Take it, and you shall be like God. Take the fruit, or open your eyes. Now, to operate by the flesh, self-dependence, You say, well, how does that exactly oppose God? Well, what drives the flesh is self. And self wants to be king. Self does not like to bow down to anybody. Self opposes God. And if you think I'm overstating it, let me put it in perspective for a minute. In Galatians 5, when we studied that last year, we saw in verse number 13... That you're called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. A contrast. Serving one another through love, or living by the flesh? You see the contrast? That's powerful when you think it through. Then he goes on to say in verse 15, If you bite and devour one another, take care you are not consumed by one another. Does that sound like a loving thing to do? A Christian thing to do? Or a fleshly thing to do? Biting, devouring, consuming one another. That's the flesh in operation. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Are those in opposition to one another? The Spirit and the flesh? Yes, they are. It even goes to say it this way. Chapter 5, verse 17 in Galatians. You probably haven't memorized by now. We hit it so many times. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. The Spirit against the flesh. And these two are in opposition to one another. They are. So I come back and ask. Does the flesh ever commend us to the things of God? No. It's in opposition to Him. It glorifies self. It opposes the things of God. And you know what it looks like when it's in operation. We had a list there in Galatians 5, too, uh, of all the things it does, immorality, impurity, sensuality, the whole list goes on and on and on about the flesh in operation. Those are self-things. Self-things. Doing it its own way, doing it what it wants, using its own strength, its own wisdom for its own will, for its own glory. That's the self. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. Can we do something about that? Well, here it is. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, you can't crucify it. He did. He went to the cross, right? That's his work. If you belong to Christ, the flesh has been crucified. That means that thing is dead. He said, but it sure seems powerful. Oh, yes, I know. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around it sometimes, isn't it? But here's the reality. Theologically, it's dead. Theologically, it's dealt with. Practically, we wrestle. We wrestle with it. Chapter 7 of Romans. Is that not the whole theme all the way through? Paul's wrestling with that thing? And then he gets to chapter 8. He says, oh, let me remind you how secure you are in this. And it's a refreshing thing. It's a very refreshing thing in light of the power of the flesh. Because he says here, living by the flesh you will die. Matter of fact, here's the funny thing about the words. It says in verse number 12 of Romans 8, no, verse 13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. You know what? That's an interesting word. It's your duty. It's your duty to die. It's, it's an expectation. It is necessary for you to die. Now, you're saying, okay, what's that mean? That's the statement of reality. Where does the flesh lead? To death. There's no other way it's going to take anybody but to death. This is a statement. If, now he's not pointing at you, Christian, so to speak, and says, now listen, Christian, if you're living by the flesh right now, you're going to die. He's saying the statement. Anyone, anyone lives by the flesh, guess what the results are? Death. That's a statement of reality. Alright? Now, If you happen to be living by the flesh right now, you're starting to worry. And that's why Scripture says it the way it does. It's to remind you, that's not your department anymore. That's not your neighborhood. You don't belong there. If you're uncomfortable right now, it's because you're in a place you don't belong. It's a scary thing. I know. But it's a statement. It's a statement that those who live by the flesh must die. Must die. That's what comes of it. Now, look on the other side. Killing the practices of the body by the spirit, you will live. Killing it. Killing, destroying, making it die, the practices of the body. Now, he doesn't even use the word flesh there, by the way. I find that intriguing. But he's talking about the actions and the ways and the operation in which you use this physical instrument to live. Right? On this side of it, you're living in such a way, by your actions, by your ways, you're killing this instrument, this body. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Well, what's that all about? Well, let's go down to something more specific in the text itself. How is that happening? By what? Second half of 13, you see it there. By what? How are you living? How are you killing this? How are you putting it to death? By what? By the Spirit. Oh, is that going to make a difference in our text right here? Think about it. It's not talking about what you're doing. It's talking about what He's doing. He's changing you. He has turned the instruments of your body into tools that can be used for righteousness. If you back up just two chapters in Romans chapter 6, you'll see it. Romans chapter 6. Try verse number 12 and 13. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Tools of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Are you? Are you alive from the dead? Come on, Christian. You should know that. The answer is yes. You have been made alive together with Christ, right? So... If that's true, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Sin is not your master. It is not your master. So the Holy Spirit that work in you to kill the practices of that instrument. To kill those things that are unrighteous. And as a result, the effects, you will live. That's where life is, for the believer. Now, I set those examples before you. Because they're not technically things that you're doing. It's who you are submitting to. If you're submitting to the flesh and life, well, we already know what that avenue brings. We don't do that. If we're submitting ourselves to the Spirit, look at the results. That's where life is. He's the one at work. It's not something for you to do. It's a statement of reality. I found it confusing when I was walking through this. Uh, The Geneva Bible has a lot of wonderful comments on it, but this one comment they made on this verse was something to the effect like this. For those who battle and fight valiantly will have eternal life. And I said, really? For those who battle and fight valiantly will have everlasting life. Do we get eternal life from fighting bravely against sin? No, we don't. We have it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? That's what it says. Now, Scripture cannot contradict itself. And so verse number 13 does not contradict the truth of that statement. There's a simple presupposition of Bible study, and that is this. The Scripture can never contradict itself. And so verse number 13 is not talking about how you get eternal life. They're just statements of reality. This road leads this way, this road leads that way, and that's reality. Here's another one I thought interesting. One commentary I was reading said, Oh, we cannot on our own strength mortify or put to end the deeds of the body. And I said, okay, that sounds good. Then he added this. It is accomplished by the aid of the Holy Spirit, helping our spirit, to that effect. And I said, "Okay, I had to stop and think about that for a minute. If I thought that through one way, it would come out this way. If I go halfway, then the Spirit helps the other half." There's another phrase you might have heard similar to that: "God helps those who help themselves." Now, is that in Scripture? No, it's not that way at all. That that's not the way He works. See, theologically I would say if we turn this verse 13 into actions of what we have to be doing or how we're to be doing it, we're going to come down roads we don't want to go down that are contrary to this truth that we already know. I know I'm going through this in a long way to do this, but we can't do anything on our own strength. With the flesh, we cannot please God. And if you insert the flesh in anything that's supposed to look religious, guess how you're doing it? By the flesh. And then you cannot please God there either, can you? Just making the point. Either this is all of God or it's none of God. When we get to these verses, we're looking at the cause and effect. This is what living by the flesh does. It brings death. This is what happens when the Spirit is leading you. It's putting to death the deeds of the body. All right? Those things are reality. But the important thing with all that is this To whom or in whom does the Spirit live? The Christian. There is no way the deeds of the body are ever going to be modified unless the Spirit is indwelling you. No way. So, on that side, I would say, that makes sense. The only way you have life, really, truly have life, is through the Spirit. So we mark those things. Those are the practices. That's what we set before us. That's just the explanation. Let's back up to the purpose for it. Therefore. Therefore. Christ is in you, we saw in verse 10. Therefore, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Therefore, see, you have life in the Spirit. Therefore, he's coming to something, isn't he? We are debtors. We are debtors. Most people hear that word and they think, oh, that's a very negative term, Pastor. Debtors? That's not looked highly upon, is it? Somebody walks in and says, boy, I owe a lot. Everyone stands up and applauds, right? No. We all say, ugh. That's that's a negative concept to us in, in modern day living. We think debtors, oh, that's a terrible thing to be. We are debtors why is it that we sing one song that says oh to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be we sing that with a happy face sometimes we're debtors we're debtors to whom we're debtors because of why let's walk through it for a simple because I think you know the answers to all of this to whom are we debtors to God why He dealt with our sin, didn't he? We can go through a whole list here. Number one, you are alive, aren't you? You're breathing. All those things. Where'd that come from? God did that. Who can turn off the switch? (laughs) God can. In a sense, every breath we take is something from his hand. How much of that did you manufacture yourself? Zero. Zero. Could you imagine if every breath came with a price tag? Say that he was very, very generous and said, I'm only going to charge you 33 cents for every breath you take. Would you be in debt? Oh, yes, you would. I'm not even going to mathematically figure that one out. We could talk about the everyday life. That's what we call common grace. And every person on this earth is indebted to God because of common grace. He gives rain on the just and the unjust. He gives food. He gives life. He gives breath. He gives shelter. He even gives them the truth so that they could come to understand Him. Every single human that's ever walked on this planet or walks here right now is a debtor to God. But you have something more. You who believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Received Him as your Savior. Go back to again how much you owe Him. Go back to again the price tag for your salvation. Now, how much did you pay? Nothing. You are saved by grace. And that's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works. lest any man should boast. We don't pay Him for our salvation. You couldn't pay Him for that salvation. You could not do that. It's a gift. It's a gift. But it did cost. It cost the life of His Son. And boy, can we go down that road and start to understand it better. The cost of the agony. The cost of the uh, stepping out of heaven and coming down to this earth to dwell among mankind. The cost of being ridiculed abused. The cost of being beaten. To have his beard torn out while he's being whipped. The the cost of thorns being beaten into his brow. The cost of nails pounded through his wrists and into his feet. You go on and on and you say, ooh. The physical cost of it all. But ultimately it was death, was it not? He paid death for our sins. Now, that was what we owed. We owed that. The wages of sin is death. And we're the sinners. The death is what we owed. He paid that for us. He paid that for us. When we talk about what we owe God, what we owe the, our Savior Jesus Christ even what we owe the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives what we owe it's just astronomical to think of all the work that he has done in our lives even to this moment and that's why that's just the half of it because there's so much yet to come I can't put a price tag on that and neither can you I'm content with hearing the word debtor when I think about it. And I'll tell you why it's precious to me and not a a frightful thought. Because a debtor is not speaking of an action. It's speaking of a state of being. I am a debtor. I acknowledge the reality of what I am. And being a debtor, I am not trying to pay off the Holy Spirit or the Father or the son, so that I could be free of him. Did you understand that? I'm not trying to pay him off so that I'm free of him. I'm not trying to pay this debt. That's not my action. I'm speaking of the reality of my position. I'm a debtor. I can't afford to pay it off. Neither can you. But here's the point. I don't want to pay him off, so to speak, so that he pleases me. Think for a minute, because I'm leading to something that's interesting. Charles Spurgeon said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without wind. We are useless without the Spirit of God. And here it is. When we are debtors, when we are debtors, especially to the Holy Spirit here, when we are debtors, We are secure in a position that does not change. Think for a minute. In this living, we do. We are forever dependent upon Him. That's what a debtor is. There is something that I like to call security in that. As contrary as it is to our whole concept of being a debtor, there is security in the fact that I will never pay him off And never have him leave. I am a debtor to him forever. A debtor. And I rejoice in that. Because I need him. That's where my life is. And there's no life outside of him. It just reminds me of something. Every time I see the word debtor. I belong to him. I have been bought with a price. Haven't you? You belong to him. You're forever a debtor, and if you were not his debtor, you would not belong to him. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We're going to get to that verse real soon. It's verse 14. But that's what we're looking at in this passage, and I know it sounds a little strange, and we came a long way around to do this, but this is the security you have in this life. That you are a debtor to God. You're under obligation. And I would rather belong to Him than to live by the flesh and die. little challenging, I know, to wrap the brain around, but it's simple when it comes down to this. Either the Spirit is giving you life, or you do not have it. Either you are a debtor, and under obligation to God, or you're living your life free from Him. So you could take the explanation and stand in one shoe or the other. You're living by the flesh right now? You don't know the Lord. You're living by the flesh right now? There's only one way that path will ever take you. And the wages of sin is death. So if you're standing there right now and you're thinking, well, I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never received the Spirit. I'm glad you're thinking that way. Because this is where the Lord says, and I've got the answer for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the answer to the flesh. Now, on the other hand, if you're saying, okay, the Spirit lives in me. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. What's he doing in there? Oh, he's at work. He's put into death that instrument that does unrighteousness. Right? He's working in you. You know what? There's security in that. It's good. That tells you he's there. That he's at work. And he's not going to quit. In case you're thinking he takes a vacation every time. No, he doesn't. He's going to keep on working that way. That's his job. That's a good thing to know. It's a good thing to step back from it all and say, Boy, if he's given me life and that's what it comes down to, then I'm a debtor. And that's good to know. Because it reminds you, you belong to Him. And you're dependent on Him. And that's where we are. As believers. Aren't we? That's where we are. So I stop with these words. And I know that's a lot to try to consume. But I tried to move you from the bottom of the ground up to the bird feeder today. All right, A little bit more up there when you start digging into some of these verses. But I just say... If you if you struggle with these things, go back to verse number 12 and bring this up before the Lord and say, Lord, show me what it means to be a debtor. Show me again what it means to be a debtor. Help me understand this more thoroughly because that's where I live. That's who I am in Christ Jesus. Well, Lord, we've only had a short while this morning to try to work through Something that is vastly, vastly larger than who we are or what we think. Your word is like that, and I'm so glad it is. We certainly can't get bored trying to figure it out, and we certainly can't stand above it and say that we know it all and we don't need it anymore. But every time we encounter a passage that digs in deep and drives us to a place where even our minds have a hard time following. Lord, it just reminds us of the majesty of your word and who you are. How great you are. How great you are. And how great is your love for us. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who has made such a difference for us. That that flesh has been dealt with. That the body is being dealt with. You're working in us constantly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for making us debtors to your grace. We're about to sing a song that's so simple. It comes from our heart, I pray though. To God be the glory, great things He has done. So love to the world that He gave us His Son. We are debtors today, thankfully. We are debtors because of you, Lord. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.